Walking the woods around my house, things still look gray and muted for winter. A murder of crows have taken to a grouping of tall trees as their hangout. Their ominous squawking and velvet black feathers seem in direct contrast to the glimpse of pale ghostly pink through the trees. It flickers between branches as I move among the trees. Before the grass or mosses begin to brighten, or new leaves sprout, the flurry of flowering branches has arrived, as if overnight, as if they suddenly materialized from a morning mist. These delicate ghosts hold a level of mystery. It's said that they house ancient spirits. They can split stone and glow in the moonlight. And almost as suddenly as they appear, they're gone, drifting like snow. Welcome back. My name is Allison B. Young, and this is Gathered, Storied Botanicals. Whether spotting them outside, or as many florists might encounter them, having them arrive at their shop doors, flowering tree branches are a signal of renewal and sunnier, warm days ahead. You may see the snowy white flowers of a Bradford pear tree lining the side streets of town, or include blooming quince in a flower arrangement. Nothing quite says spring like these early blooming flowers. The idea of saying something with flowers or assigning symbolic meaning to them seems to be innate to human nature. I think many of us in the western part of the world tend to associate the language of flowers to Victorian-era courtships. During a time where people kept their feelings close to the vest or corset, flowers offered a way to express themselves that was socially acceptable. A suitor might send a rose to someone as a flirtation, and the recipient could reciprocate those feelings with a corresponding bloom, or, oddly enough, a small bundle of straw, or could turn them down with a yellow carnation, which signaled their disdain. It's easy for this idea to veer into Hallmark sentimentality, but I think there's a fundamental link between language and plant life that we humans are always trying to reconcile. Conveying an idea through something as beguiling as a flower when words don't quite reach the right meaning can be incredibly powerful. Exchanging flowers with specific meanings doesn't feel so different from taking the time to write a letter out by hand or composing a poem. For me, using flowers to express something is a kind of translation. The interest and even reliance on flowers that the Victorians adopted and embraced is rooted in the East, in many instances China and Japan. In Japanese culture, the symbolism and language of flowers has an incredible reach. While the Victorians were resourceful, using flowers to communicate their emotions as a workaround from the stuffy, repressed era, the Japanese developed a language of flowers that stretched from religious practice to a warrior's philosophy to even adorn their legal documents like passports and government seals. And as you may already know, there is one flower that holds a particular kind of significance in Japan, the cherry blossom. The cherry blossom, or sakura, has been an integral part of the Japanese culture for thousands of years. The tree's blooms are a clear metaphor for rebirth, fresh starts, and for Japan they have become the literal mark of a new year. 
Not only do they designate the month of March and April in the Japanese and Chinese calendars, but they also mark the start of the school year and fiscal year in Japan. We might be used to watching fireworks to usher in new beginnings here in the U.S., but Japan has cultivated the tradition of hanami, or watching blossoms as it's translated. Hanami might come in the form of a picnic or barbecue at a city park, or it could look like a leisurely walk along a footpath that runs along a canal. Soft pink clouds overhead. If you're looking for a more romantic version, yuzakura is the term for hanami at night, where street lamps or lanterns hanging in the branches might light up the streets against the night sky. And it can look like a color wood print created by Katao Shigamasa called Third Lunar Month, Blossom Viewing at Asuka Hill. The 18th century artist included this print as part of a calendar series. It depicts a group gathered on a picnic blanket on what looks like a gray, chilly day. A partial enclosure of cloth seems to shield them from the early spring cold while they sip warmed sake. The cherry blossoms wrap around the group, creating an unusual perspective for the viewer. It is as though you might take the point of view of a bird, looking down or through the flowering branches. And floating in what looks like a gray cloud at the top of the print is a poem. Translated, it reads, All flock together, blossoms upon blossoms, Asuka Hill. Shigamasa captures the delicacy of the blooms, as well as their welcomed softness after winter's hard edges, both through his printmaking as well as through the written word. But what makes the cherry blossom that much more remarkable is its ability to hold differing, even dichotomous or opposing meanings, fragility and impermanence, but also strength and resilience through the ages. As one source puts it, Cherry blossoms symbolize both birth and death, beauty and violence. They are a central motif in Japanese worship of nature. It goes on to say that the flowers are also tied to the short but colorful life of the samurai. I've mentioned the connection between samurai imagery, the Victorian era, and the natural world before. The practice of Pressing flowers and leaves began as an exercise for the dexterity and patience in handling small details among samurai warriors, which later became a pastime for upper-class Victorian women. The samurai looked to the cherry blossom as a depiction of life, a cue to how fleeting life could be, and because of this, a samurai had no plans for the future. They took this cue to live and fight brilliantly, briefly, and to go down dramatically. When I first read this, it felt both out of place, but also in perfect accordance with the Japanese concept of impermanence and the mindset required of a soldier. The fact that these military noblemen chose the cherry blossom as their key emblem, not a fierce animal like an eagle or tiger, illustrates the dichotomy of this flower. And if the blossoms weren't enough to inspire a samurai warrior, the tree itself might. If you were to visit Japan, you could find some of the country's oldest residents to see the immensity and power of a cherry blossom. The first is Usozumi Tsukura. It's believed that 6th century emperor Kaitai planted this tree in the mountains of the Gifu prefecture, making it roughly 1500 years old. 
Today you may find it with tall stakes propped under its limbs, but that doesn't diminish its strong presence. Its name refers to the unique change in color as the blooms open and then fade. They start out as their quintessential pale pink that then shifts to a ghostly gray before falling. The second tree is Jindai Zakura. It might be one of Japan's oldest trees at 2,000 years old. Some of its bows were lost during the Showa era between the 1920s and 80s. This gives it its odd shape, with its trunk low and squatty, looking as though trees are growing out of a large, dark boulder. And to see an actual tree growing from a boulder, you can visit Ishiwari Tsukura at the Marioka District Courthouse, north of Tokyo in the city of Sendai. Measuring at about four feet wide, Ishiwari Tsukura is on the younger side, only about 400 years old. The tree bursts from a narrow crack in the granite boulder, its limbs stretching out and giving the appearance as though someone had designed it, a giant bonsai thriving despite its adverse origin. These national treasures of nature demonstrate the strength of the cherry tree, but they have also offered us lessons in resilience from their ability to cross oceans and resonate in other cultures. In Scottish folklore, it was believed that carving a walking stick from cherry wood would prevent the traveler from getting lost in heavy fog or mist. It was also used to make bagpipes. In England, it was common tradition to decorate churches with cherry blossoms around the Easter holiday. And here in the U.S., and here in the U.S., our founding father, George Washington's honesty, became intrinsically tied to the cherry tree as though someone had carved his initials into its trunk. And metaphorically speaking, that's kind of what happened. According to Jay Richardson of George Mason University, the story of George Washington's famous line, I cannot tell a lie, wasn't pulled from history, but from the imagination of the first president's biographer, a man named Mason Locke Weems. After Washington's death in 1799, People were anxious to learn about him, and Weems was ready to supply the demand. The cherry tree myth helped make his biography a bestseller, and satisfied this collective desire to deify Washington. Richardson explains that Weems was a Federalist admirer of order and self-discipline, and by focusing on the President's private virtues instead of public accomplishments, he intended to present Washington as the perfect role model, especially for young Americans. There's an irony in this, Weems making up a story about the first president's honesty and integrity. Perhaps it's another way that the cherry blossom can show us the duplicity of the world around us, our own dichotomous nature. This idea of admiration, though, is key to the Hanami tradition, and it sprung up all over. Similar Hanami-inspired cherry groves can be found in Vancouver, Toronto, Paris, Copenhagen, and it's a deep, enduring admiration that brought the cherry trees to Washington, D.C. We'll toggle back to the Victorian era, where we can meet Eliza Ruhama Sidmore. Born in D.C. during the Civil War, Sidmore became a journalist at 19 years old. Her career would grow to include travel writer, author, photographer, lecturer, art expert, plant enthusiast, and a board member of National Geographic. Despite leading a rich, adventurous life of travel and writing, 
Sidmore's personal life is veiled in obscurity and mystery. She wrote eight books and 300 articles, and yet, as Michael E. Rown of the Washington Post wrote, she was always the narrator, never the subject. Rown and Sidmore scholar Diana Pabst Parcel could catch glimpses of her personal life while she traveled to Japan with written scenes of her transporting a camera and tripod around the country, ascending stormy Mount Fiji, and learning the intricacies of an ancient Japanese tea ceremony. There isn't much known about her beyond this, despite carving out a life that was deemed daring for women at that time, and for pioneering the effort to bring cherry blossoms to D.C. She first approached the U.S. Army Superintendent of the Office of Public Buildings and Grounds in 1885. She had just returned from her first trip to Japan, and she proposed that Japanese cherry trees be planted along the Potomac waterfront. She had seen firsthand the cherry blossom's ability to entrance everyone, from princes to beggars, and that in Japan people were so moved by the flowering branches, they scrawled poems on slips of paper and hung them in the branches. But her proposals, pleas, her photographs didn't sway the bureaucrats. Sidmore described the experience, it was as one crying in the wilderness that I begged. Three administrations later, Sidmore was still persistent. Her own granite boulder would ultimately split. 21 years later, U.S. Department of Agriculture official and plant explorer Dr. David Fairchild had planted 75 cherry trees at his home to see how they would survive the D.C. area's climate. After his experiment was deemed a success and celebrated on Arbor Day in 1908, Sidmore began to see her time-worn plea and determination paying off. She set to work raising money in order to purchase the cherry trees and donate them to the city. This time she had the help from First Lady Helen Taft, who had her own vision of beautifying the capital city. With the coordinated efforts between American and Japanese officials, 2,000 trees arrived in Seattle from Japan. After crossing an ocean, these trees then made the cross-country trip to D.C., but their long journey would end in dismay and heartbreak. As the Department of Agriculture team unpacked the trees for inspection, all 2,000 were found to be infested and diseased. In order to protect American-grown trees and plants already established, the cherry trees were burned. I can only imagine how Eliza Sidmore must have felt knowing the travels that those trees took the hard work and decades-long efforts of convincing people to bring them to the U.S., and then to have to see them, smell them, burning in a large heap along the Washington Mall. Even though it had to be disheartening, the Japanese and Americans remained optimistic. According to the National Park Service timeline, all parties involved from Japan met the distressing news with determination and goodwill. Another donation was made, and this time, Japan sent over 3,000 trees, which arrived, insect-free, at the end of March in 1912. At the ceremony where the first cherry trees were planted, First Lady Helen Taft gave the Japanese ambassador's wife, a woman named Viscountess Chinda, a bouquet of American Beauty roses. According to the Antique Rose Emporium, American Beauty opens as a large cupped flower of deep glowing pink that has an excellent perfume. This rose blooms repeatedly with a tall bush that's vigorous once established 
and usually grows thornless. Perhaps the coded meaning of this exchange was a friendship through diplomacy, a long-awaited chance to grow something, a gesture of gratitude. A few years later, after all the trees were planted along the tidal basin, President Taft wanted to express his own gratitude to Japan and sent a gift of flowering dogwood trees. The cherry trees were established along DC's tidal basin. A festival celebrating them began in the mid-30s that carries on today. Unfortunately, despite the cherry trees' roots acclimating to their new home, these trees would face new threats. In 1938, if you opened up a morning newspaper in November, you might have caught a small column with the headline, Roosevelt Curbs Tree Rebellion. The word rebellion is in quotes, and the first line reads, Washington club women who molest workmen transplanting Japanese cherry trees to make way for the Jefferson Memorial may be transplanted themselves. While this short yet wordy New York Times blurb seems to downplay the protest, people in Washington were genuinely alarmed that these remarkable and storied trees would suffer and perhaps not even survive being transplanted, or that they'd simply be cut down. Shortly after the Cherry Blossom Festival became a DC tradition, a commission was organized to build the Thomas Jefferson Memorial. According to Steve Hendricks of the Washington Post, the plan to locate a memorial to Jefferson on the southeast corner of the tree-lined tidal basin was greeted with consternation from the start. A post featured a front-page headline, All of Tidal Basin Cherry Trees Doomed by Jefferson Memorial Commission Plans. Officials leading the construction of the Jefferson Memorial tried to reassure protesters that new trees would be planted after the monument was completed, that there would be other cherry tree groves in a different part of the city that would be much prettier. But this missed the point. The protesters' message and will to protect the cherry trees had gotten lost in translation. One Washingtonian who was especially alarmed that as many as 600 trees would be cut down for the memorial was Eleanor Medal Sissy Patterson. She came from a newspaper-owning family, which included a grandfather who owned the Chicago Tribune, while she herself owned the Washington Times-Herald. Perhaps this lent to her ability to get the word out about the threat to the trees and organize a petition that was presented to the White House along with 50 protesters. The next day, the number of protesters had tripled and arrived at the site that construction was to start. Protesters took shovels from the workers, stood cross-armed before bulldozers, and chained themselves to the trees. The news of the protests reached President Franklin D. Roosevelt during a press briefing. His response was that the public has been subjected by the owner of the newspapers to the worst case of flim-flamming Washington has seen in a long time. Ultimately, Roosevelt gave Patterson and the protesters an ultimatum. Either they'd leave the site to allow the work to resume, or both the trees and protesters would be removed forcibly. While this caught the attention of newspapers, a poem written by Sandra Beasley in Waxwing magazine offers the most succinct account of the Cherry Tree Rebellion. To save the cherry trees, O Sissy, O Eliza, O Clara, O Catherine, you buckled your shoes and descended. Fifty of you marched your petition to the President's house, a flim-flam, he called it, cooked up by the newspapers. The next day, a hundred and fifty of you marched to the tidal basin. 
you grabbed shovels from the Civilian Conservation Corps, refilling holes. You hitched your skirts and chained yourselves to the trunks. The Secretary of Interior sent lunch over, and coffee, cup after cup, coaxing your bladders toward betrayal. Oh sissy, oh Eliza, oh Clara, oh Catherine, oh Valkyries in muslin. I imagine you staying deep into the night of November 1938. For the first two hours you talk, in the third hour you sing, in the fifth hour your stoles come alive, fresh dew on the eyes of each fox, fur damp, an exhalation that fogs as if breath. But instead you'd already gone home to your warm beds. Dig fast, Roosevelt told the graveyard crew, and the men did. The protesters relented. The workers finished digging up trees overnight, and the Jefferson Memorial was completed in 1943. Hendricks points out that, although it may have been a bitter day for the defenders of the trees, they could take heart that the finished memorial consumed far fewer trees than some earlier plans called for. And what's more, when they took in the scene the next spring, all the bark and marble, blossoms and columns looked born to share that space. A neoclassical classic was born. And it's true, it's hard to imagine the cherry blossoms in D.C. without a postcard-like shot of the Jefferson Memorial nestled among the pink ruffled canopies. But it didn't take long before the trees were under attack again. This time, the cutting down of trees was an expression of retaliation after the attack on Pearl Harbor. Three days after the bombing in Hawaii, someone crept onto the mall and felled four of the cherry trees, including two that were from the original 1912 planting. Carved into one of the stumps were the words, To Hell with the Japanese. The culprit wasn't caught, but the animosity toward the cherry trees lingered through World War II. The Cherry Blossom Festival was cancelled for five years. Japanese-made products were pulled from store shelves. Collections of Japanese art and sculptures were stowed away in an effort to express outrage, but also to protect the artworks from being vandalized. Buddhist temples and Japanese-run grocery stores were attacked. Intern camps were erected, holding 120,000 Japanese people, all as part of our lashing out. Blossoms upon blossoms, tied to birth and death, beauty and violence, the symbolism we have placed on the cherry blossom is heavy and full of duplicity, full of contradictions. To say it with flowers is to hold these contradictions with a poeticism that we can't always compose ourselves. When Sissy Patterson walked up to the White House with the petition the day before the Cherry Tree Rebellion, it was reported that the 50 protesters who joined her chanted the poem Trees by Joyce Kilmer. The poem goes like this. I think that I shall never see a poem lovely as a tree. A tree whose hungry mouth is pressed against the earth's sweet flowing breast. A tree that looks at God all day and lifts her leafy arms to pray. A tree that may in summer wear a nest of robins in her hair, upon whose bosom snow has lain, who intimately lives with rain. Poems are made by fools like me, but only God can make a tree. 
Since the end of the war, the admiration and awe has been restored to the cherry blossoms in D.C. Like an especially hard winter or brutal storm, the cherry trees continue to weather harsh conditions, and they continue to carry the weight of meaning, from ancient Japanese emperors to the modern trials in a world that moves as swiftly as a cherry blossom's lifespan. And for all that meaning they carry for us, I wonder what meaning we might carry for them. Could we carry their steadfast nature, their delicacy and grace through the damp chill or sudden spring storm? While reading up on cherry blossoms for this episode, I was struck by how many poems I stumbled upon that weave into this story. So this fool will leave you with a little poem I wrote. It's night, and they float. Ghosts, both ancient and reborn, haunt us, comfort us. Gathered Story Botanicals is a monthly podcast. I'm sorry for the delay in releasing this episode, and I hope I did right by all the Japanese pronunciations. If you liked what you heard here, please tune in on May 20th for the next episode. Also, please consider rating the show on Apple Podcasts and leaving a review. You can also head over to the website, gathered-storiedbotanicals.com, if you'd like more flowers in your life. Thank you for listening, and until next time. <laughs>